Thank you for tuning in to Trevor Talks Podcast, where we talk to real people about real topics and real stories. Today's guest is a fireball for apologetics. This guy's a pastor. He was uh, classified as one of the top 26 leaders to watch by Outreach Magazine and Christianity Today. It's it's just phenomenal to see how much this guy can pack into one book when it comes to apologetics and just bringing believers and skeptics and answering the questions on the scandal of Jesus. Today, we've got Mark Clark on the show. Mark, how are you? I am very well, sir. Thanks for having me. Hope you are well. I am doing well. You I, know, I as well as... If- you know, I wonder if the top 26, I wonder if they had to expand it out <laughs> to include me. And that's why there's 26, because, you know, 26 is an interesting number for them to come up with. So mm-hmm. I wonder if they said, you know, we have 25 leaders to watch, but we want to include Mark. So we should do 26. Yeah, I was like 26 leaders. There has to be a significance there. I don't think there were 26 disciples in that uh, arena. I don't know what they're no. going for, but you made it. You, you know, made the I, list. I, I made the list. And that's uh, all that yeah. matters. Yeah, that's, all. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that matters is that you made the list in, in and life you get, and you yeah. get to tell people about Jesus. Oh, now yeah. the next list you have to hit is best dad of the year and not getting like sabotaged by your wife for doing too many podcast interviews in a day. Hey, what you, you know, I, I'm already, you know, I'm already head of the game there. Ask my three daughters <laughs> and they'll, they'll give me five stars. Out of, out of five, hopefully. <laughs> so you are the founding pastor of Village Church, which is a multi-site church with locations in multiple cities across Canada and online around the world. You seek to reach skeptics and challenge Christians. Tell us a little bit about where you found yourself in this platform that God has given you and just what's the story behind you? Who is Mark? Yeah. Well, um, I was born just outside of Toronto, uh, grew up in a, in a totally, uh, non-Christian home. So, uh, I, I, the way I illustrate that usually is just to kind of tell people, uh, that, that, uh, my dad, who I grew up in like, like, so no church, no Bible, nothing. Um, so my dad was such an, like an ardent atheist that my brother, his name is Matthew. And he spelt, he made my mom spell Matt's name with one T because he didn't want to spell it like the Bible. And then four years later, they had me and named me Mark. So clearly this guy had never picked up a Bible and recognized the irony of such a thing. Uh, you know, if I had another brother, you could probably call him Luke. Uh, he didn't know what's going on. So this was the house I grew up in. I walked into a church. When I was 19, but a couple of years before that, a guy had told me about Jesus, uh, in, in high school. And so I just started exploring Jesus and I was always a skeptic. I was always an evidential thinker. Uh, I don't believe stuff unless there's evidence for it. I don't just believe stuff because it feels good or because everyone else is doing it, whatever. So here I am you know, living my life the way that, you know, doing all the stuff you do, you know, as a 17, 18 year old kid without Jesus in your life. Right. So, um, and then I had this profound encounter with Jesus and like, I would sit outside my high school, Trevor, and just like smoke a pack of cigarettes, read the Bible and Jesus, like just got a hold of my life. And so I just, you know, started studying him like crazy, started giving, you know, gave my life to him. And then I would start telling everybody I knew about him, which was interesting because I'd be out 
you know, in front of my house at one o'clock in the morning, just telling people about Jesus and guys would come to Christ half hammered high, you know, whatever. And, uh, and I'd be baptizing them at like two in the morning, you know, before I was ever back, like just a weird dynamic, you know, one Friday I'm sitting in, you know, this, uh, this garage of my friend's house and all of us are smoking up and filling this garage with, you know, weed, whatever. And, and, you know, a couple, a month later, I'm in there telling them about Jesus. So it was like this profound encounter where he transformed my life. Um, and I couldn't get away from it. And so I started exploring him and went to church and I had a bunch of people tell me I should go into ministry. And so I was like, well, how do I pitch that to my family? You know, they're going to be like, there's no money in that. How are you going to make a living or how are you going to support a family? You know, all these. And so I did, I started going to college and had this like real passion for scholarship. And so some, some teachers actually would make me do lectures in front of the class and like saw something in me. Um, so I came out to Vancouver, got married. My wife and I came out here to do a master's degree. And then I was going to go on and do a PhD and overseas. And God said, no, I want you to start a church for skeptics. And I was like, well, I'm in Canada, man. So it's like, we're a generation ahead of you guys, probably in regard to post-Christian culture, right? Secularization. So I'm like, why would I start a church in Vancouver? There's <laughs> no one likes Jesus here. You know? What's the point? So 16 of us kind of got in my house and just said, let's go. Well, let's just teach the Bible and tell people about you. Tell people they're a disaster. You know, everyone was like, well, if you're going to plant a church in Canada, you got to kind of be soft and, you know, tell everyone that it's okay, whatever. I'm sorry, you know, whatever. Um, and so I was like, no. So we you tell people that they're, they're a disaster, but Jesus is the hero of, of their life. And if they give their life to him and people started to meet Jesus and it was crazy and it started to just kind of go from there. And that was 11 years ago now. And so uh, it's been a ride. Dude, that's so phenomenal. And so you were a skeptic. Uh, you grew up in the family of not being in a Christian household. At what point did you figure out like, okay, I see who Mark used to be. I see who Mark is after finding Jesus. I want to help people like me overcome this grippling thing inside of me that Jesus does not exist. I want to reach the people that are asking the hard questions and asking for research and evidence to back it up. At what point were you like, oh, that's me, hands down? Um, I mean, right off the bat, I had this like, inclination of I want to answer the kinds of questions I would want to answer because I can see in this person's face they're asking the same questions and so I wanted to be able to explore Christianity from a historical philosophical psychological standpoint and be able to go look all the best stuff in the academic world you know, all the best stuff from the cultural stuff, uh, from a cultural critique kind of world, whether that's sociology or history or psychology or whatever, is pointing toward Christianity as the best idea in the marketplace of ideas. And here's the evidence. And then not only stop there, and this is constantly what I try to do in the book in, in my preaching is let's get it down to real granular, real life stuff, because your neighbor doesn't only want to know if Christianity is true. They want to know whether it works. Does it work to change their marriage? Does it work to change their life? Does it work to change the way that they deal with money or sexuality or family or work or whatever? Um, 
and they're leaving their house and they're not, most people aren't like, well, you know, epistemologically, I think Kierkegaard had a, you know, that's probably not what the regular Joe's dealing with. So let's take all that. Let's go. I'll go away and figure that stuff out. And then I'll present it to you in a way that is completely, uh, you have the ability to actually understand it. Um, And so let's bring in, you know, everything. This book is like, this is C.S. Lewis meets N.T. Wright meets Malcolm Gladwell meets Jordan Peterson meets James Bond, Lord of the Rings. It's a pop culture meets academics. It's there's stuff for everyone. But as you said, it's trying to give evidence for the skeptic and it's inspiring and informing the, the already believer. Like maybe there's things about Jesus that you actually don't have straight. Like you've been, maybe it's been skewed or it's been lost in the midst of our cultural moment of trying to present Jesus as whatever our cultural moment needs him to be versus who he actually was, like what he was saying, what he was doing. Um, And so the book does both of those things while engaging all of that kind of cultural conversation. So I think it's super fun. People, you know, I think people have fun with the book. It's trying to bring in all kinds of, you know, stuff that we're, we're exposed to all the time. I, uh, I opened the chapter, for instance, on uh, parables by talking about me being in a coffee shop. And I used to do these things, Trevor, where I would like, I tell the church, hey, bring your friends to the coffee shop at eight o'clock at night and they can ask me anything they want. And I'll just sit on a stool and they can just bust my chops, whatever. So people would bring, I don't know why I would do this to myself, but people would bring their friends. And so I'd sit at a coffee shop and I'd just go until people didn't want to talk anymore. So it'd be three hours in this coffee shop. And they'd ask everything under the sun, right? All the classic stuff about science and sexuality and philosophy and evil and suffering and the gospel, you know, all this stuff. But then a guy raised his hand. He said, what do you think if Jesus was alive today, what do you think he'd be doing? Uh, and I said, uh, he'd probably be making movies and TV shows. And they're like, they all started to laugh. I'm like, no, for real. Like what? What did Jesus do with his time? You know, uh, you know, he, he told stories and those stories that we call parables were meant to break open worldviews and set people free from the empires that they lived in by the, from the realities of what they were, you know, hit with every single day. Uh, he cracked open worldviews of, I want you to rethink God, yourself, salvation, heaven, hell, joy. And I'm going to tell stories in order to do that. And so probably even more so, you know, than hanging out with pastors and rabbis and philosophy teachers, he'd be hanging out with, you know, Spielberg and Coppola and Nolan, you know? So it's like, He's a storyteller that cracks, but it's not just stories under stories. It reshuffles everything that we thought we knew about ourselves and God and salvation and joy and the rest of it. So um, anyway, all that to say, I try to bring all this kind of cultural stuff into the biblical stuff and present it to people. So it connects with the regular Joe. Yeah. And you mentioned that there are some things that have most likely been overlooked when it comes to Jesus and what we're taught and even church, like what are some of those things that you feel may have got lost in translation when it comes to the historical figure of who Jesus was and is? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a few things. I mean, I think one of the big things is if I was to ask, you know, the regular Joe on the street, um, 
you know, what was Jesus about? What did he like talk about? What was his main center teaching? People might say, well, it was about the forgiveness of sins or it was about loving your neighbor or, you know, whatever. But actually, if you read the data, um, Jesus was about the kingdom of God. That's the thing he talked about the most. All of the things about forgiveness of sins and those are all downstream from this main thing that he was on about over and over and over again, even statistically like 90 times in the gospels, he says the phrase kingdom of God. Well, the regular Joe today, I'm not sure walking around town just knows what he meant. And how are we going to figure out what Jesus was about? If we don't put him back in his first century context and go, he didn't mean what we might mean by these terms. He meant what a first century Jew would mean by these terms, you know, so let's rethink that, you know, when, when he's talking about, you know, one of the popular things today is to like, you know, I know all these people who like get in their Bible studies and they study like revelation or, or, you know, whatever. And they try to figure out what the book of revelation is about. And they're like, well, it's a, and they, and they read it literally. And they're like, look, there's this, and there's a beast and there's a six, six, six. And what you realize is no, no, no. Like, like that book was written in a certain genre, right. Of literature that was, that was kicking around at the time called apocalyptic and nobody in their right mind as a first century Jew took it literally. It was metaphorical language explaining, giving theological significance to historical events. And so what I talk about is when, when Jesus says, you know, hey, that when the temple's destroyed, the son of man's going to ride on clouds. You know, we tend to take that literally and we're looking up, waiting for a guy to come on a cloud and he's got a sword in between his teeth and he's trying to talk to people. And it's like, yeah, no, no one in the first century would have ever read that text that way. <laughs> you know, it's like these are met, these are images giving theological significance to the destruction of the temple that Jesus talked about. So the point being that. We just sometimes get Jesus wrong when we try to fit him into our mold of thinking versus going back and going, let's try to figure out what, what was he saying to the people who existed at his time, you know, and then start going, okay, here's what it means for us. So those would be a few examples of, and we just, we just get those stories wrong. So one of the, one of the things I talk about in the parables chapter is the prodigal son, which is probably, you know, the most famous parable. Um, And the fact that, you know, it's, it's actually a story about two sons. You know, the first one is the e-religious secular son who takes his dad's money and goes off and sleeps with prostitutes. And then he realizes and he comes back to himself and the dad runs out and covers him in his robe and it gives him his ring and they have a party. And then the sermon usually stops and we tell everyone to change their life. Except that the second half of the story is there's another son. And he's the religious son. He's the son who went to church every week and does his devos and has handles on his Bible and has never watched a rated R movie in his life. And he's the son who doesn't come into the party in the end. He's the son who doesn't come into the kingdom because his religious heart has kept him outside of the kingdom. He says in the story, I've done everything you wanted me to do. I've never wronged you. I've kept all your commandments. But he never comes in. And the scandal, of course, of that story is it's the religious people that sometimes don't get into the kingdom. Yeah. So like he was following all the laws, but when it came down to forgiveness and such, like at the end of the day, he was studying a little too hard on what he should do and what he shouldn't do and didn't actually live it out. Yeah. And he and he didn't, you know, I like to say you could be born in the church, serve in the church, 
get married in the church, die in the church, have your funeral in the church and still wake up in hell mm-hmm. because you didn't actually know him. You, 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 you had an exoskeleton religious life, but you didn't actually in a relationship, know the God of the universe personally. And so Jesus tells these stories and they're scandalous to everybody. They upend everybody. They upend everything. Um, and so the beauty of it, though, is, and I talk about this in the, the, the chapter on discipleship, is he's doing it for our good in the end. So even when he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, these things sound hard and difficult and whatever. But he's doing them because he's, he's kind of, um, you know, the new age movement is going to tell us to find ourselves, go inside of ourselves, find your divinity, you know, all of that. And Jesus comes along and goes, no, deny yourself. But it's not just deny yourself. Like Eastern philosophy would say, like just unto denial, it's deny yourself and stop living off the things you're trying. You're trying to find meaning and purpose and value through beauty and uh, sex and your, your, reputation and your job and becoming successful and becoming smart and having a good marriage and all that stuff will crush you. Yeah. And so you need to deny though, basing your life off those things and base your life off me. And then when those things leave you, when those things destroy you, you know, I've done marriage counseling for 20 years. Uh, and how many couples come in and they made their spouse their main way that they find joy and meaning and purpose and value in life. And then that spouse cheated on them, lied to them, died. And if they are what, you know, Tim Keller calls your functional savior in your heart, who is going to save you and comfort you when those things happen? If your beauty if you trust in your beauty and you get a scar on your face or you just get older, what happened in you know, all of this? So Jesus is doing this all, not because he's narcissistic and like, Hey, worship me. He's doing it ultimately for our own good. Yeah, that's so deep. And I wrote down some, what could be controversial questions that come up when it comes to the Bible, especially when it comes to skeptics. And a lot of the things that are being challenged by not only the modern day I don't know what the movement would be. I don't know if it classifies prosperity or what, but we have a lot of pastors that are becoming more of motivational speakers. They're not speaking on hell. They're not speaking on homosexuality. They're not speaking on the questions that people are actively wanting answered. And as a young person, I feel like I can speak on when churches are like, the young people are going away from the church. Why is that? As someone who has went away from the church before in my life, we're tired of, coffee shop culture, watered down preaching. Like if we're going to church, we want to be a part of a community. We want to be discipled and we just want to hear the truth. Like stop trying to cater and just preach, speak the gospel, what comes out of the Bible. So um, I'd really like to talk about hell just because it's, I'm not able to talk about it a lot on the podcast just because it doesn't pop up in conversation. But for you as someone who studies the Bible and um, addresses skeptics and just goes into everything about it, the, like I was saying, the modern day church and the whole movement of just motivational speaking, feel good preaching, they're not hitting on hell. What does the Bible actually say about hell? So I wrote a, my first book, which came out a couple of years ago, called The Problem of God. There's a whole chapter on this question, uh, The Problem of Hell. And so 
the first thing to say about it, I think, is um, to recognize, like, for me, this is is not like a hypothetical question. I grew up in a non-Christian home. My father died when I was uh, the, the atheist guy when I was 15. Uh, and so unless and I didn't see him for a few years because my parents had divorced. But unless someone like came and gave him the gospel, my own father could be experiencing this right now. I don't know. I, I hope I hope to the Lord not. I hope someone got to. But um, and so it's not a hypothetical question. Um super important one for me personally and one of the harder ones for me personally this and probably evil and suffering are some of the most difficult ones but the thing we got to understand is first off it's not just a question of christianity that teaches this lots of religions teach some form of justice punishment you know whatever um and and when i talk to people about this the one thing that i point out is we all have a sense of justice and 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 i usually say do you I know you don't like the concept of hell, but do you like the concept, for instance, of a rapist and a murderer just getting away? Let's say in this life they never go to jail and they rape children and they do terrible things. Do you like the idea of that? Well, no, no, I think they should pay for it. You know, okay. So, so you think people should, you know, where did that sense of justice come from? It came from the fact that we're made in the image of God, a God of justice, who is going to mete out judgment on people perfectly. And isn't that something that you want? You know, if, if, you know, it takes, uh, Miroslav Volf says, you know, it takes the, the, uh, the, basically the comfort of the secular liberal suburban mind to sit around coffee shops and drink your latte and basically say, I don't like judgment. Uh, you know, take yourself into the villages of Africa where there's men coming in, slaughtering whole groups, taking women as little girls and as sex slaves. Um, and then ask the dads whether they uh, shuck away from the idea that God will bring judgment one day. That ain't, they're not going to lose any sleep over that. It takes the comfort of our Western life to come up with a concept where I won't worship God if he's a God of judgment, right? Um, every other culture in the world goes, I won't worship God if he's not a God of judgment because I live in so much nonsense that never gets paid for, right? So you got to question whether you're just becoming a product of the culture that you live in and reading the prompter of the culture you live in, because depending on the culture you live in, are gonna that's going to define what you don't like about God. You know, you and I might not like the sexual ethic or something in, in Christianity, and we might love the love your enemies stuff, you know, but then get in a plane and go to Saudi Arabia and ask them what they don't like. They're not, they're going to think the sexual stuff's a little loose, but love your enemy. Forget that. I'm, I do not like that idea. Cause these people killed my grandparents, you know, whatever. So depending on the culture you're in is going to help. It's going to define what you're skeptical about. So at least become aware of when you're just becoming a product of the cultural moment that you're in, when you start to ask this question. Um, and then of course, you know, you got to realize that hell, you don't, you don't not like it uh, based on evidence um, like some things you could bring to me and you could say, uh, you know, I don't believe in the Gospels because I did an archaeological dig and that never happened or something like that's evidential thinking. But but when someone says they don't like hell, it's not a it's not an evidential thing. It's a more of a repulsion than it is a doubt. It's that they don't at a gut level. They don't like the concept. But 
of course, in life, there's lots of things at a gut level that don't feel good, but that are right. You know, I, I, I run a church and sometimes we have to fire people. Well, it never feels good to sit someone down and fire them, but it might be the right thing to do. Yeah. The flip side to that is actually even more dangerous, that there's things that feel good that aren't right. You know, so so adultery might be fun for a while, but in the end, it ain't good. So we have to be very careful in letting, you know, this view of the universe feels better when I'm having Thanksgiving dinner with my family. Letting that become the main paradigm in which we make decisions about what we accept or don't accept in the world. You know, so once we've got some of those thoughts out of the way and we're able to go okay i have to doubt my own doubts i have to i have to put my own presuppositions through a bit of a analysis here and make sure i'm putting them on trial before i start just deducing what i like and don't like then we start looking at the evidence and we realize the evidence is overwhelming jesus did really teach about this topic um i remember years ago uh watching an interview with deepak chopra who's like, you know, new age thinker. And he's like, you know, Christianity, it's not about judgment. And also it's basically about love. It's, it's, it's about Jesus sermon on the Mount, go read the sermon on the Mount. And that's Christianity. And I'm like, Deepak, when's the last time you read this sermon on the Mount? Because literally the doctrine of hell is the center of that whole sermon. Like nowhere in the Bible does hell come up more almost, you know, it's like we needed to get to meek and mild Jesus to ever get the concept of hell. And of course there's debate within Christianity about what he meant by these phrases and the Gehenna and the gnashing of teeth. And the, but the point is he was saying at the end of the day, you know, believe and worship me or there will be judgment that will be ongoing. And I, I literally, it's funny cause I, I wrote the problem of God I came out in 2017. I just saw someone on Twitter yesterday tweeting about my chapter on hell saying like, it's been, the most helpful thing for them because it wrestles kind of with the concepts of the justification behind why hell actually makes sense. And of course, then I talk about the fact that all the evidence seems to say that hell is going to be perfectly hell and heaven are going to be perfectly suited for each person, which is why um, the, the judgment passages in the Bible are constantly talking about what you did with your life. Right. So whether that's Romans two, John five, Revelation 21 and 22, Matthew 25, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Because there's like everyone's experience isn't going to necessarily be the same. You know, Jesus said it's going to be better for this city than that city on judgment day. You know, there seems to be this like value system behind both Jesus sermon on the Mount, reward, reward, do this and you'll get more rewards. Do this. It's not like this you know, one size fits all thing, which I think a whole fascinating world that I don't think we talk about very often. Anyway, the point being, it's a terrible concept. It's awful. And we should do everything we can to make sure people don't experience it uh, for themselves. But at the end of the day, in order for people to get out of it, as C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton talked about, it's their rebel hearts have to submit to the authority of Jesus um, in order to, in this life, in order not to experience that kind of judgment. And are we willing to do that? So we've addressed hell. From a biblical standpoint, how should the church address homosexuality? Uh, 
Well, that, that one's complicated, obviously, because we're talking about now we're out of the realm of concept and more into the realm of people's identity, which I think um, that's where, you know, it, when you talk about hell, you're talking about like a philosophical thing. When you talk about sexuality, you're talking about what people feel is themselves. <laughs> and so, um, you know, like uh, one writer I was listening to talks about the idea that if he was starting his church, he planted a church in a major urban center. And he said, if I was starting it today, what I would talk about was identity. Because that's what every, everybody wants to talk about identity all the time. And, and why we have to be so nuanced and careful in this conversation is because it is identity that we're talking about. We're not talking about something people do in their minds. Now, the church thinks that's what they're talking about. Yeah. I feel like the church mostly thinks about the act of like – a lifestyle of homosexuality like when it comes right. down to it um it's not a sin to struggle with same-sex attraction it's in what i see and what i feel the bible is teaching which feel free to correct me if you see it wrong um it's the act mm-hmm. you can struggle with it all day long i'm not saying you weren't born that way like but when you start acting on it that's where the sin comes into play so like if anybody's listening and they're homosexual or they're atheist like we're not bashing you at all in these conversations i just i want to ask the questions that nobody else wants to ask even if it means uh losing subscribers or whatever just because if you're afraid to get out of your comfort zone, what are you actually doing with your platform is my thought. Yeah. I want to make sure that people are offered the truth 100%, no matter how um, hard the conversation or how uncomfortable it can be. Um, like, especially when it comes to homosexuality, like I feel like the church has done uh, and not all churches. Some churches have done better than others on accepting people from the uh, LGBTQ community as people. Like it's not, it, it's almost as if uh, someone that's committing fraud or sleeping with their um, boyfriend or girlfriend living together walk into a church and they get a pass because you can't see their sin. Um mm-hmm how is it different for the LGBTQ community and what does the Bible say about the lifestyle itself? Yeah. And I think what happens is the church, um, I was, I was listening to someone the other day talk about this tension of, I think the church sometimes doesn't understand that um, this is a conversation about people's identity and who they are. Um, And so you know, he was talking about the idea that like take two or three different issues uh, in the, in the, in the present political climate, everybody views every belief through a political lens. And so everything's either left or right. And he said, the problem with that is, is that if you're like a biblical person and you, you're like really invested in the biblical story from Genesis to revelation, there's going to be some things that sound conservative and some things that sound liberal. And so if you believe X about sexuality and you believe X about social justice, you know, different people are going to leave your church at different times and they're going to do so depending on what state you're in. You know, if you're in Georgia and you want to talk about social justice from the pulpit based on the prophets, 
you know, people are going to be like, oh, I'm feeling uncomfortable. You know, what's, you know, this sounds really liberal. And, you know, who wrote this sermon? Biden, you know, whatever. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, and then you're going to have, if you're in New York City, you're going to get up and talk about things about sexuality, even just the concept of, hey, don't sleep around. Have, uh, you know, sexuality is explicitly only in the context of marriage. Even that's like, dude, I'm leaving this church. Who wrote this thing? Trump, you know, like this crazy conservative sermon. So depending on where you are, if you're trying to present the Bible and people are viewing it through these lenses, it becomes hard. So the church has to really do a good job at like nuancing that conversation and and being, you know, fully, you know, fully biblical around these, you know, potentially contentious things. These are real lives. Yeah. And um, for some reason, especially in America, there's white Jesus everywhere. There's an Americanized version of Jesus. What is the difference between the real Jesus and the Americanized version of Jesus? I personally see the biggest argument is that trends with Jesus nowadays is Jesus wasn't white, uh, which I personally don't believe he is white. Um <laughs> Where did the Americanized well, that's a good version? Start, Trevor. Yeah. Come yeah. on, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, where did the Americanized version of Jesus come from? Yeah, I mean that's that's a whole. I would uh, we could spend a whole day on that. Um, <laughs> and I'm of course I'm speaking as a Canadian, so no offense, but uh, you know I, I, I talk about the idea of like uh, you know Canada is probably a generation ahead of you know you guys in regard to secularization, and so I come to you from the future. You know, uh, to tell you about where your twenty thirty culture is going in twenty thirty, yeah. Um, and amazingly, Jesus, you know, our church is is an indicator. Like we started preaching Jesus as real as we could, you know, probably what the book's about. Let's clear away the cultural versions and get back to the real one, and let's see what can happen. And that's what we've tried to do. And it can still work, even from twenty thirty, right? It could still work that people get their lives transformed. And we've baptized, you know, a lot of people and have a lot of people coming to the church and campuses across Canada by preaching the biblical Jesus, not by making up a new one and being like, Hey, just, you know, basically, Hey, here's a Canadian Christianized version of Jesus. You know, now just believe in him. And everyone's like, sure, whatever. I'd have, I'd have coffee with that guy. So let's, let's call ourselves Christians. It's like, yeah, no, that's not a thing. Um, so, you know, part of it is let's take uh, the example of, Comfort, you know, I talk about in one of the chapters on discipleship, like one of the kingdoms Jesus is trying to disciple us out of is the kingdom, uh, is the discipleship in the context of comfort as a priority and family and the American dream, as if that's Christian, you know, and it's like Jesus comes at that when he says, you know, hey, having a family isn't the most important thing in the universe and your family you know, you, you, you tend to elevate family, read Luke chapter nine. Hey, I want to go bury my father. No, you don't get to go bury your father in a middle Eastern culture where that would have been like crazy. You don't understand if you love your father more than you love me, 
you can't follow me. And it's like, we go, Oh, that's kind of crazy. But it's like, he knows that the best way to love your family is to love Jesus more than you love your family, because they'll, you know, sometimes your family's the one who keeps you from hearing the voice of Jesus, right? Hey, Hey family, I want to go off and be a missionary in some place. No, don't do that. Don't, you know, your kids are in school. You got a nice house. You got a good mortgage. You know, you got everything set. Don't be dumb and listen to God, <laughs> you know, um, and so sometimes the people who are closest to us are the worst for us when it comes to actually hearing the, the radical call in our life to follow him in all things. Uh, and so this version of Christianity has gone out, this, this version of, um, okay, so all I'm asking you to do is have a different view of the divinity of Christ than your neighbor, but you can spend money, do sexuality, watch Netflix and scroll Instagram, the exact same as your neighbor. You can look exactly the same. Just believe some different stuff about me and all is well. And it's like, you read the new Testament. It's like, yeah, that's not a thing. It's like becoming a disciple in all things is the paradigmatic framework of Christianity. 260 nine times the word disciple is used three times the word Christian is used. It's like this being a disciple with your stuff, with your body, with your brain, with your life, with your money. All of this is what Christianity is about. And what we've done is let's make suburban Jesus, Republican Jesus, white Jesus, you know, whatever your thing is, or liberal Jesus, social justice, Jesus, uh, whatever my thing is, Let's adapt him to that. And Jesus becomes the face of it. And it's, and it's wrong on both sides. And, and what I talk about in the book is actually this, the, one of the best examples of this, there was a German scholar during World War II named Ernst Kaseman, And he came out and he said, listen, here's the problem with this. Um, the Nazis have made Jesus a white Aryan Jesus. That was, and the minute you eliminate the Jewishness of Jesus, now this sets up the, atrocities in world war ii and caseman came out later and he said look if you take jesus outside of his historical context you can make him in anything so you're a you're a revolutionary guerrilla fighter in you know south america now he's your face you're a conservative whatever now he's you know just make jesus into whomever you want and getting back to wait a minute the Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus of the Gospels, like he's not going to let you just take him and adapt him to whatever political ideology you want. He's going to confront you, whether you're left or right, on all kinds of stuff. And you got to try to get to a place where you can hear that. Wow. And the last thing I wanted to ask you is why should we chase discipleship over basic Christianity? Well, uh, I, I would want to just say because it's more biblical, but nobody's going to be inspired by that. And yawn. Uh, so let me come at it from a different angle. I think Jesus would say um, it's the best thing for you. Um, here, here's the thing. Like Jesus has a, uh, a perspective that is much larger than we tend to have, right? What we tend to make decisions about is what's going to make me happy for the next three weeks. You know, that's what matters. 
or three hours, you know, whatever. Jesus doesn't only want to make your next 80 years really significant. He cares about the next 80 million after that. He cares what your life is like in eternity. And so when you have an eternal perspective on stuff, you start to realize like this life is a flash. And what he wants is like, so for instance, when I, when I want my wife, when I come down and see my wife doing devotions every, every morning, I'm like, man, I would, if she didn't do that, I would hope that I would challenge her to do that because my role as her husband is not to make sure she just has a good 70 years. It's 70 million and the 70 million after that. How can I love my wife so much that she cherishes and treasures Jesus so much that her reward is great. And she, you know, all of that. And so I think, you know, discipleship isn't just about, oh, God just doesn't want me doing these things. It's like he doesn't want you doing those things because he actually knows how you're wired and he knows how you're going to flourish both in the present and the future. And that's why he doesn't want you to worship beauty. And that's why he doesn't want you to worship money, because he knows these things are going to destroy you. And so he lays out a better way to be human and he invites both the skeptic and the believer to go, okay, take my version and see see what happens come to the end of yourself and realize that you know i hate to tell your listeners but the one common denominator in all the problems of your life is you you know and so it's like you can we can blame and project and play witnesses and martyrs or victims and martyrs our whole life but at some point we got to take responsibility for our lives and go it might be that i have the wrong hero on the chair i'm i'm trying to control myself and control my circumstances and control everything around me, but I do not have an eternal perspective, which is why I talk about this uh, in one of the chapters. Ernest Becker, who was a, a psychologist back in the 70s, wrote a book, and he talked about the idea that if we take the transcendent out of the equation, all that leaves humankind with is a crushing guilt and shame because we are sinners who don't have a name for it. We, we, and all we can do is look to ourselves to save ourselves. And the problem is, is we're really bad saviors. We can't look externally to, for anybody to save us. And so we live in the shame and the guilt of our lives and the burden of the fact that we're lost and we, we don't we can't admit it. And that's just bad psychology. And so uh, the freedom is going, OK. How do I actually live for something that trans someone who transcends this world? And you were talking about people leaving the church and young people. I think young people want something to live and die for. Mm. You hold up a Jesus who's just exactly what they like. Uh, what, what do I need to give up my life? What do I need to get out of bed early for that for? Yeah, it's like there's no adaptation for that. You right. Like for me as a younger person at the time that we're recording this it's like okay if there's no challenge with it like what are you sacrificing what is going into it there's no challenge with that and it gets boring and like i love everything that you're saying about jesus and uh, chasing discipleship and where can people find you on social media and purchase your book yeah uh the problem of jesus.com probably the easiest place to go or amazon just type in the title um and uh, Instagram and Facebook, I'm on there. Mark underscore Clark on uh, on Instagram, and just look me up on Facebook. I have a page or two there where I drop 
as much content as I can. I have a YouTube channel. I'm trying to populate that with some videos about a whole bunch of stuff. I do these videos where Pastor Mark reacts and people show me like, here's Joe Rogan on atheism. And then I just sit and listen to it. And then I just start talking in response to it and, and with no setup. And so they just throw a whole bunch of stuff at me. So there's a bunch of those videos that are fun on there. And so anyway, those are a couple of places. I love that so much. And everybody listening, go pick up the problem of Jesus and go ahead and do yourself a favor and get the problem of God too. And really dive in and hone in on what Pastor Mark has gone in and just laid out so graciously for all of us to consume and just be challenged by. And thank you so much for listening to Trevor Talks. I'm so thankful that we're now a part of the Edify Podcast Network. And um, go check out some more podcasts on there. Leave a review, uh, subscribe, and we will talk to you guys next week. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com.